Higher Voltage is brought to you by Squiz. University websites are filled with great information, but oftentimes a simple internal site search does not give users the information they're looking for. Funnelback, the site search product by Squiz, changes the way people engage with content by revolutionizing search. It delivers relevant and comprehensive search results for users, which is key for business objectives. Visit squiz.net, that's S-Q-U-I-Z.net, to see how Funnelback by Squiz can create a smarter site search option for your institution's website today. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Today's guest is Aaron Basco from the University of Lynchburg in Virginia. Today, we're talking about a recent article he wrote called The Perils of a Generic College that I'm excited to chat with him about. Aaron, thank you for joining me today on the show. Before we dive in, I'm wondering if you can give us a brief introduction. Obviously, I said where you work, but how'd you get into higher ed and what brings you to writing this article today? Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I'm happy to share a little bit of background. I've been in uh, higher education in the enrollment space for about 25 years now. I've been at five different institutions. So I uh, I love admissions and enrollment, financial aid. Um, I've worked in student success and those kinds of pieces as well. I'm originally from Maine, but I've moved around to a lot of different states, mostly uh, up and down the East Coast. And um you know, I think I got started thinking about this article really as I was talking to colleagues from different places. And, you know, like I said, I, I've worked for a couple of different institutions. And I think one of the biggest challenges that enrollment managers face is as we're going out and trying to help students understand who we are as an institution, right? What makes us special enough that a student would want to choose us over somewhere else? And you know, what I, I kept seeing was just like, wow, places just seem to be saying the same thing over and over again. Everybody talks about the small class sizes, the fact that it's a you know strong you know sense of community, that professors pay attention to you, that you're not a number. And I thought, wow, you know, how many times can you hear those same talking points be, before it comes, you know, like, as I talked about in the article, it, it starts to sound like, you know, the voice from Charlie Brown, the teacher saying, wah, 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 right? You know, so why is it that we struggle with this issue so much when we we all know that people respond to clarity. They respond to bravery. They respond to, you know, you being yourself and sharing that with the world. And why is it so hard for institutions to embrace that sense of who they really are when they're doing some great things and um, just seem to be struggling to, to tell people about it in a way that, that sets them apart? I think it's a fascinating topic and one that I run into quite a bit in my job. I work at an agency. I've worked at a couple of agencies that specialize in higher ed branding and marketing. And when we would go out for discovery visits and still to this day, when we go out for discovery visits, which is the first kind of step in a rebranding, you know, you go to a campus and collect as much information as possible. It was almost like having a bingo card. We would always hear small <laughs> class sizes. We would always hear beautiful campus. We would always hear our students have their professor's cell numbers. And it's these, these things that have become kind of a currency that used to be valuable, but now has no value because everyone is saying the same thing. And so I'm curious about how you came to the point where you realized this needs to be something I should write down. And this needs to be something that should be in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think part of what made it gel for me was I do some occasional consulting for different institutions and organizations. And I went on a consulting visit to um, an institution in the Midwest that was 
I thought really kind of unique or at least rare in that instead of being really a four-year focus, they focus on the last two years. So they work with students coming in as transfers from a lot of community colleges, and they help them sort of finish off their education to go to a four-year institution, which is, you know, a little unusual. And as I collected information and I talked to people there, I just got this, you know, overwhelming sense of story that this was a place that was really embracing diversity in lots of different forms in terms of the age groups that they worked with in terms of the needs of students. And I talked with some of the students there and they were like, oh, I love this place. You know, this is like, this represents America to me, right? Like this is a place that embraces you where you are and it has a place for everybody. And then as I was talking to the, you know, the staff from there, they weren't getting that story, right? For them, it was just all they knew. And so they were like, oh yeah, well, you know, we're trying to, you know, improve in our, you know, classes and improve. And And I'm thinking, you all have a really unique and powerful story to tell and you're not telling it. And I don't know why I said, you know, you all could be saying like, we are like America's new university, right? We are the, the, the new face of, you know, true diversity in our area, right? Or whatever, because we embrace all these different kinds of students. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe they're just too close to it. And, and that's what's making that hard. But I thought, okay, if even a place like this struggles to embrace being different than other places, you know, no wonder it's a struggle to, to places that are maybe a little bit more traditional in their approach. And so I came back from that visit really thinking, you know, what is it that people hear that really means differentiation to them, right? What is it that cuts through all the noise and, you know, kind of diffusion that happens in the areas of marketing and would make somebody actually really pay attention to and say, you know, that place is really being authentic. They're offering something different. And that's something that really resonates with me. So that's kind of how I got started. And I was sharing that idea with a friend of mine and he was like, you totally need to write an article about this, right? You you know, I I think you need to to send this in and, and see if others, if it resonates with other people. Well, it resonated with me, both from a personal and from a professional point of view. I think it feels like oftentimes higher ed has this personality that is it is risk averse, right? Like mm-hmm. saying anything that's yeah. different than what is in the mainstream means that you are not going to be successful in what you're trying to do. When in fact, in the marketing and branding space, being special in those kinds of ways actually is valuable. And so I'm curious why you think higher ed institutions invariably end up sounding interchangeable and generic in their marketing. Well, I think you hit on part of it being the risk aversion that's there, right? In a funny way, you know, as much as I would say that colleges and universities have been a progressive force in society in some ways, in other ways, they're very conservative entities in the in the sort of older meaning of that word, right? They tend to, I think, attract people who like safety, who like things to remain somewhat the same, right? You know, there's a little bit of that sense of, okay, this is good. Let's not mess it up, right? And there's there's definitely a risk factor in standing up and standing out, right? You, to be, it's a lot safer to just blend in with the crowd and know that you are like checking off all the boxes and, you know, it's going to be okay, right? And it takes a certain amount of courage, I think, to be able to stand out and say, you know what? we're not going to be for everybody. We're not going to try to serve everybody. We are going to specialize in, you know, this kind of a story or these kind of values. And we're confident that if we plant a flag, that the people who believe the same way that we do or value the same things that we do are going to be attracted to that. So I I think, you know, that's a, 
uh, identity challenge, um, but it also reflects the fact that, you know, universities are very complex, right? And you have a lot of different, you know, people who want their part of the university to maybe be the most important or at least get its share of attention. And so it's sometimes hard to get people to say, you know what, it's okay if I'm not in the front seat, but my institution will benefit if we all kind of pull in the same direction. So I I think there are elements of of that um, in it too. I think we, you know, again, it's, it's just, it takes a little bit of courage to say we're not for everybody and that's okay. But the people that will like us will really like us and that will make us great. So I, I think you have to have that kind of vision about it and that kind of confidence. I agree. I think the list of, of factors that play into this kind of generic marketing experience that prospective students have, or the list is long, like what those things are. And I think one of the other ones that I often think about is the balance of influence between alums and prospective students, Mm. um, donors and prospective students, where, you know, alums view their college experience in the way, like through the lens of their experience only. And then when things start to change, it's like, hang on, what's going on here? Like, this is what I had, but an institution evolving to meet the needs of changing times is a thing that they have to do to, to remain relevant. The other part about it, I think, is that donors, like wealthy donors especially, have a different kind of influence over a, a, a institution's brand and marketing than a prospective student will. And so when you see like, well, we need to increase our rankings so that I can give you this $1 million, like mm-hmm. what is that could be an influential kind of conversation to have from a donor to an institution, but that is not serving the prospective student in the way that they might need to be. If the brand belongs to so many people, it's hard for them, for the institution to have targeted messages that feel authentic. Authenticity is one of those words that people say all the time now in higher ed, but at the same time, nothing is authentic because everything is the same. Right. And so I just feel like there's this like catch-22 where you're chasing this type of success that everyone else is chasing, but no one has any new tools or has the bravery or the courage to be different in the race. And I just find that so fascinating. Oh, I totally agree. It's like we're all trying to fish in the same little you know, spot in the lake, right? Right. Um, and and it, it's not really working for us, I don't think, very well. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, alums and, you know, also big donors. And I remember hearing somebody um, at one point talking about websites and talking about that, like, yes, you have to make a website that's for all your different audiences. But the only audience that won't forgive you for not um, making it about them is prospective students, right? Everybody else will be like, oh, you're doing that because you're trying to speak to students, right? Your alums will understand that you're trying to speak to students, but your students won't understand that you're trying to uh, speak to alums, right? So I think, you know, to encourage those folks, your alums and your donors, what you're doing is exciting because you're, you know, moving forward and you're chasing the students that you think are really the best fit. I think that is really important, but, you know, you're you're right. It's it does feel like sometimes everybody's using the same tools. And for me, it doesn't have to be that way because I think, I think in some ways people are actually like, it's this tug and pull that they have with the the concept of marketing. Right. I think there's this, you know, institutional resistance to the fact that we're selling ourselves as a product. And, and so, you know, you get kind of a, a, you know, an academic push in one direction, then a marketing push in the other direction. And I think that's why I've always tried to talk with people about this issue as this is really just about telling your story. Right. This is about understanding who you are and what is in your, you know, institutional DNA. 
It's funny. I was thinking just this morning that I used to work a lot with career development and work with students. And I would oftentimes, when I was trying to help them pick out a career, I would suggest that they do this exercise that I called the three movies exercise, where I would say, okay, think of your three favorite movies and tell me their plots in just a couple sentences. Like what's the basic plot of this movie, right? And I would have them tell me that. And I would say, now compare those. And what you usually find is that the three plots of your favorite movies will be almost identical to each other if you simplify them. And the characters that you relate to in those movies will be almost identical to each other. And you'll you'll you know relate in a certain way to that type of character. And that tells you something about who you are and what you should be doing with your life. And I think in some ways it's the same for institutions, right? I'd almost like to have institutions go out there and say, okay, find me your three favorite graduate stories, right? Your three outcomes that you are the most proud of and that most resonate with who you are. And let's see if they don't stick together around one central story about what you do and what you bring to the world. And I think when you do that and you start to collect those stories and you think, oh, you know what we do better than anybody else? It's this. And then you can start to tell that story in a way which is not marketing spin, which is not just about coming up with a tagline, but it's about telling a story that is deeply ingrained in who you are. And I think that's what's really powerful. I agree with you 100%. And I think it's both what you're saying and how you're saying it. I mean, there are, we have examples of brands all over the place that are not higher ed brands that have, have been brave enough to st- either stand for something, do something different tech companies, retail, all these, you know, all these other industries. And I just find it fascinating that higher ed is so slow to the table when it comes to differentiation, right? We talk about differentiation. We talk about authenticity and realness. And the fact is, is that it's just still so hard to differentiate for for a prospective student to tell which is which. We used to do exercises in, in other jobs where we would take six view books, blur out the name, and say, do you know which schools these are? And more often than not, no, I don't know what which is which. Why, how would I know that? So when I see examples like Swarthmore, Swarthmore is a, has, is a beautiful example of communicating in different ways. They have a view book that is type only um, and tells a story. It, it, it speaks like the people it's speaking to. And it's a really interesting way to do marketing because it, you feel seen when you're reading it. It makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. But we're all chasing this kind of shell prize of, you know, make it go viral and let's do let's do one thing and, or like, let's try to make this, this view book or website please every single person. And it just, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so I think, I wonder about the motivations, right? I think, I do think rankings play a role in this conversation. Yeah. I'm curious what your, what your perspective is on the role rankings play and the kind of the flattening of the, of higher ed marketing. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that. I think we have, you know, uh, you know, almost universally, right. Conformed ourselves to a, a role that we see ourselves in, right. We've said, Oh, well, you know, we're on the list of great liberal arts colleges and that means certain things. And the only way that we can measure ourselves is if we meet those certain things, right. Instead of saying, you know, it's nice that people picked out a category for us, but, you know, we don't like that category or, you know, we don't really care about the ways that people are measuring against that category. What we want to be known for is this, you know, whatever that is, right? So I do think the rankings have been a big part of it. You know, I get it. They had to start somewhere and getting people into boxes, but I think that box can't be the be all and end all of what you're measuring yourself against. It's, you know, it's shorthand and I get that's convenient sometimes, but I think it's to the institution's detriment to say, hey, okay, we accept that box and now we have to play by the rules of all the institutions that are on that box, you know? I think it's much more important to say, 
you know, great, let people put us wherever they want on that. Let us decide what we want to be measured by. And then let us, you know, move forward to see if we can, you know, do that better, right? You know, I've really enjoyed, I'm, I'm relatively new at the University of Lynchburg, but I, you know, I talk about in the article, this is a place where we've got one of those giant Virginia love signs in the middle of our campus, right? And, you know, for anybody from Virginia, they're like, oh yeah, it's a Virginia love sign. But for us, it's like, this is our heartbeat, right? Like I always joke that kind of, you know, love is in our blood because I look back into the history of the institution. And this was a place that was founded by a particular Christian denomination at the time. And their whole thing was service to the community and, you know, service to others, right? And it was that was like what you were supposed to do. And like, that's what people gave money for, you know? And so even though, you know, the institution has sort of evolved away from some of that identity, you still feel that every day on campus. There's so many service pieces to what people do here. And I, I just, you know, that really resonated for me. Right. And so there's an example of a story that's like, what a great story to tell, right? I mean, you know, that this is what's important to you as a value. And some people will resonate with that and other people won't. And they'll say, well, that's nice, but that's not for me. And that's okay. Let those folks go, right? But work with the people who say, yes, that's what's in my heart too. And let me, I want to become and be part of that story. And that's really who you're trying to attract, right? I, I always think about it as you have this big sort of umbrella story that the institution puts out that it says, this is who we are and this is what we value. And then it reaches out to students and says, come bring your story into our story. Help us build our story by you bringing your individual story under this umbrella. And I think that's where the magic happens, right? That's what makes, that's something that everybody can feel good about. And, and the institution can move ahead in that way. Yes, I think I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the role of a brand is about more than just recruiting students, especially in higher ed. It's not just about recruiting students. It's about recruiting faculty, staff, leadership. Every like Everyone who is there is there because they believe in what you are doing, hopefully. And that's part of a brand's job is to communicate what you believe in, what you stand for, and who you are in the world, and who you're for in the world. And if that is not clear... People, it becomes almost impossible to make a decision. I think often about the clients that I have had in my time uh, in higher ed marketing and branding who have said, we want to be bold. And then we give them bold things and like, that's way too bold. We can't, <laughs> we can't do that. That's wild. That's yeah. too much. But what the capacity for too much or the space that for too much in higher ed is like endless because what we're doing now is just not, is not now. So to the point of, you know, recruiting, not just prospective students, but also faculty, staff and leadership, I think about, you know, marketing as an amplifier of what's happening on campus and marketing can only tell the stories of what's real, right? right. This is, we're not trying to make up things, whatever else. And so that brings me to the, the point of strategic plans, which are now becoming marketing tactics as mm -hmm. opposed to guiding documents. You see, a, you can find a strategic plan on any higher ed website today and they are positioned as marketing items. And there's recent articles as recently as last year about like how similar these strategic plans are starting to sound. They're all using the same buzzwords. They're all after the same kinds of successes. And I'm trying to figure out if it's the marketing that's making institutions sound generic, or is it the way that institutions are thinking about the future that marketing then has to amplify and messaging that is making them all sound generic? You know, that's a great question. I love that question. Because, 
you know, we know that institutions are different in the things that they offer. We know that students have a different experience there. So if the, you know, the institution itself is not the same, then what is it? It's got to be, at least to some degree, it has to be the marketing, right, in the story that you're telling. But I do think what you're getting to as well is that there's something behind that market, right? It's not people sitting in the marketing office just making things up and putting it out there, right? If they're taking their cues from what's put into that strategic plan, right? They're only going to market what the institution says, this is what we say is important to us. And so at some point, you are you know, maybe not being bold enough in your strategic planning or you're, like you're saying, choosing the same buzzwords that everybody else is choosing, right? So for, you know, for a while it was like, okay, the way we're going to be successful in the world is if we just add more majors because we just need more, you know, if we'll do that, then people will come to us and there'll be more demand. And so everybody, you know, put into their strategic plans, okay, that we need to, you know, grow our majors, right? Or we need to diversify in this way, or we need to become more international or more graduates or, you know, so, I think people follow in these trends of whatever's hot at the time that they feel like, okay, that will be the key to really making us stand up uh, above others. And I think they, those pieces tend to sometimes be much more tactical than actually strategic, right? They're, they're more about like how you do things rather than why you do things. And I think there's, um, there's a lot of room to back up and say in the strategy, like, okay, you know, who are we really going to be? I think one of the big challenges is that comes is, you know, one of the most natural places to differentiate is by choosing sort of what areas of study you're going to offer and which ones you're going to excel in, right? So some of the clearest examples out there of people, places that are differentiated are done so by major, right? Like I always think about Johns Hopkins, right? Well, nobody has to tell you what Johns Hopkins decided they were going to put front and center in their story, right? Or Babson, right? In the business world. I mean, those are clear examples of differentiation, but they are, academically based. And I think that's really challenging in a lot of institutions because, again, people say, "Uh oh, if I'm not in the front seat, then I'm way in the back, right? And so how do, um, you know, how can institutionally you get the benefits of having some areas of relative greatness without leaving other people out? And I think that can be a, a real challenge. I think that that's definitely worth conversation. And I think what we know or what is suggested is that institutions with pillar programs, that those spotlight majors that they are known for, the halo effect is that some of the other majors get a lift as well because people know that it's a great school in this. And so just because you put a mat out and say, we're great at engineering or you know design, whatever it is, doesn't mean that you're only going to get people who want to be engineers and designers. You're going to get a bunch of other kinds of people too. And so I understand you know, among faculty how that kind of turf kind of uh, conversation can occur, but understanding that we're all trying to lift up the same institution and we work in the same place and, you know, we're a team. I know that feels idealistic and kind of quixotic, but that's the nature of the beast, right? If, if this program is strong, let's use that power to lift up the other programs on campus. And I just think that that's an important conversation to have because you can't be everything to everybody, especially not all the time. I had a colleague back in the day who I still think is one of the most hilariously brilliant people who uh, used the analogy of ping pong balls, right? So if you're, you've got 16 ping pong balls and you throw them at one person, the likelihood of them catching any of them is pretty slim. But if you have one ping pong ball and that's the a targeted message and you throw that at the person, the likelihood of them catching that message is significantly higher. And so when you have all of these things and trying to do all of the social and be everything to everybody, you're diluting all of your efforts, especially your brand's efforts. And so I just, I think about that a lot. I think about that a whole lot. 
That's a great analogy. And I, you know, I think about something similar to that. I, I sometimes think about it as like, you're trying to shoot a target, right. And get something to like an, something to stick into the target. It's actually stick. Well, are you going to shoot an arrow, which has a point, which is narrow and focused, or are you going to throw a thing of cotton candy at it? Right. It's just not going to like, it's not going to go. Um, exactly. And I, you know, the other analogy I use a lot and I talked about in the article is the idea of having a big tent, right? I, I say, well, okay, there are two types of tents right out there. You can have a tent, which is, you know, only built outside with four foot poles all the way around. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, Four foot high is how, how high you can get under it. Or you can build a tent. You can have three 12 foot, foot poles and all the rest four foot, foot poles around the outside. Well, which one are you going to be able to get under, right? Like who, which one is going to welcome people in, right? And by allowing there to be some height into it, everybody gets to stand taller because you have a few places that are sort of leading the way. And then, you know, everybody else benefits, right? Nobody's going to look at Hopkins and say, well, I'm sure medical programs are their only good programs, right? It's just not going to happen. And so you're right. The halo effect, I think, is something that if we could get over the initial give, um, we would get a lot more than we give, I think. I agree with you. I agree with you. I want to kind of see if there are institutions in the world that you've come across that are compellingly differentiated in the market. I know I can think of a couple, but I want to see if uh, which, which ones come to mind for you. Yeah, well, I mentioned a couple, um, you know, based on their sort of academic piece. And so I think those are, you know, uh, somewhat natural. I mean, obviously you have places like, you know, Thunderbird, right? That, you know, that, I mean, everybody just knows them for kind of one thing, right? But then, you know, again, there are other places that I think are, they're differentiators in waiting, right? They're, they're places that actually are doing the really good things, right? Like the place that I, I mentioned earlier that I had, had gone and done some consulting work for was Governor State in Illinois. And again, I think that, you know, they're not on everybody's list, but they could be well known if they sort of, been, you know, embrace that really unique characteristic of, of who they are. So again, I think, I think it's places that just say, this is who we are and, you know, we're okay with that you know, and, you know, love us or leave us, but that's, I don't know. I, I'm curious to hear what, what places you, you were thinking about. I think of places like Paul Quinn College in Texas. Um, it's a historically black college led by a man named Michael Sorrell, who I'm a huge fan of anyway, but he is very clear and the institution is very clear about who they serve, how they serve them and what their mission in mm -hmm. education is around reducing debt, around, you know, student workers and the importance of you know, getting that experience. They do that in a very, very um, intentional way. They have a very interesting history as well. I think about Bentley University in Waltham. They are very, very clear about who they are as a business school, uh, but also with a, a liberal arts spin. I think about Otterbein College and their leader, John Comerford, who's been on this show in the show in the past, and the way that they focus on being student-centered and lifting up uh, students and assisting and providing the support they need in order to be successful. There are just these places that are starting to pop up who coincidentally, probably not, but coincidentally have also kind of eschewed kind of rankings, right? John Comerford is not really concerned about rankings. He's more concerned about the success of his students. Right. Um, and I think the more colleges that pop up and say, here's who we are, here's who we serve, here's what we care about, here's how we exist, you know, socially, politically, whatever else, those are the places and those are the brands that will get the people they want. Yes, they will lose some folks, but the people who leave you didn't love you enough in the first place. Right. right. So you want the people who want to be with you no matter what. And those are the most valuable audience members 
ever who know and believe what your mission is. And they make the best alums, right? I mean, you want to recruit people that have the same heart so that they can go out into the world and share that same heart. And then when people look at them and say, wow, you know, this is really, you know, this person's really amazing. And you talk to that person, they're like, well, I learned that here, right? Or I got mentored in that here. You know, those are the people that you point to afterwards and say, this is what we were all about, right? I, you know, I think about, you know, here I talked about serving other people and making a difference. And, you know, I was really impressed when I got here that, University of Lynchburg's most famous alum is Setsuko Thurlow. She was a Nobel Peace Prize winner for nuclear disarmament. It just fits right in the story, right? And you tend to, you're going to attract the people who have those same gifts, and then you're going to help nurture those and send them out into the world. And yeah, if they're a person that's just attracted to like where you're ranked, well, you know, they would trade you in for someone else, you know, on another right. day, right? I mean, they just say, oh, okay, well, it's it's all about, it's all positional. So if you weren't ranked there, they would be happy to be with someone else, right? And instead, you're attracting people who are like, no, no, I get this place and this place gets me. And um, again, I think those are the alums that you want to have who come back to you and say, this place changed my life, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. What do you see as some of the easiest ways? I know you talked about some of them, like kind of, philosophically or theoretically, but what are some of the easiest ways that you think institutions can start to differentiate themselves from each other, knowing that the product, the end product is all basically the same, essentially Mm -hmm. the same? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I always try to challenge myself on as I think about, okay, when a visitor of any kind comes to campus, right, whether that's a prospective student or, you know, an alum or somebody from off campus in the community or whatever, what are the three things that I would like that person to leave our campus having experienced or heard about? What are those most important three things that I think, you know, universally everybody should know about us? And I think that starts the ball rolling because then then you can look and say, okay, well, how do academic pieces fit into that, right? So we talked about, you can, you know, you can definitely pick and choose some areas that you think you have some areas of excellence. I think you can also embrace your location, I think is, you know, one of the few things that's definitely different place to place, right? You can take a great liberal arts college, but they are all located somewhere different. And so to be able to say, this is how we embrace our location. And this is why that location can also be a benefit to you. So I think that's, you know, another thing you can look at and say, what does that do for us? And how does that make a difference? And then I think, you know, you looking backward into your history is really important too. I think a lot of places, you know, they got to a certain point and they were like, oh, no, no, we're just looking forward. We want to be this kind of institution. So we're going to, you know, forget our past because maybe we're not as proud of it as we would like to be. And I think that's a mistake. I think oftentimes the easiest way to find your differentiating story is to look back and say, wow, this is where we came from, right? I, I, um, I, I worked at a great institution about 15 years ago that was one of the earliest you know, colleges in the nation. And they were actually founded because all of the great schools were right on the coast. And so people who were you know, a couple hours inland they didn't have anywhere to go, right? And so people in those areas needed doctors and lawyers and clergy and that kind of stuff. And so this institution became like the place for building up you know, professionals inland from the coast. And I mean, what a wonderful history to embrace, right? And to say, look, we were, you know, that's who we were and this is our leadership and this is how we want to roll it forward. So I think looking backward into your past will tell you where you need to go in the future. And you don't need to keep everything, but figure out where the heart is and keep that and then translate it into today's, you know, uh, way of displaying those values. It's really an interesting point that you make. I agree with you. I think that there are opportunities to look back into the past 
and distance yourself from that as well as a way to, to, to differentiate. I mean, uh, we've mm. been having the last two years, these conversations around civil war statues and, you know, removal and campuses. And I think the historical part of understanding evolution is like institutions change and this is not who we are anymore. And acknowledging mm. that and changing for the future, as opposed to staying the same for the past is such an, uh, such an opportunity for institutions, right? Obviously, we can't get away from the education space from kindergarten through secondary from being politicized. It's now in a politicized state. But understanding who your audiences are and what they care about and making decisions that meet their needs and not the needs of your donors or alums because they are no longer part of the wave of people coming in. Yes, they're part of your community, but are they your primary audience? Hopefully not. And then you can make decisions based on that. And so, yes, I agree with you about the historical part. Even if you're not proud of it, then make new decisions to be better at a yep. better institution because of it. I think that's a great point because, you know, if you're an institution, if you've been around a hundred years, you've made some mistakes, right? You've made some bad choices somewhere and, you know, kind of got off the track somewhere. And so to look back and say, Hey, this is what we did well, or this is what was noble in the way that we started. Here's where we missed, right? And here's where we did it wrong. And how can we keep what is noble, but, you know, look to be better, right? And say, we, you know, we're going to learn from our mistakes, but we're going to take our best self and continue to evolve it. And I think, again, that goes back to that sense of risk aversion or concern with making change, right? It's, you can change a lot of things about yourself and still keep some of those heart values that you hold dear. And that's, and you should be, right? You should be actively working on yourself as an institution to be constantly making yourself better, right? I, I think you you start to get into trouble when you think, hey, we've pretty much arrived, you know, we're here. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of times, um, especially now, it feels like higher ed views marketing in such a way that the things that got us to where we are today are going to just just keep doing those things and we'll stay okay. And that's just not the -hmm. case anymore. And so what the industry and the market requires is bold thinking, new strategies, and to me, an evolved vernacular, because a lot of the words that you even use in higher ed, like, are just strange words. Like <laughs> Nobody else understands them, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just very, weird. Yeah. Very strange. And so I think moving forward into the future, higher ed is going to have to decide who it is for and yeah. market distinctly to those people. And I think that's just the only way around it. I think one of the big challenges too is that even as we've worked on marketing, I feel like a lot of the times we're talking to ourselves. We're not actually talking to our audience. We're not listening and saying, what did they need to hear? What would be the most helpful to them? We're using marketing as a way to kind of bolster up how we feel about ourselves, right? And oh, of course we're like this. And of course we, you know, and I think that's a real mistake. You know, we need to be. I think we need to have the humility to say, look, this is not about us, right? This is about the students that we serve. And I think if we, you know, listened well and thought about that external audience as just as important or as more important than our internal audience, I think we would do marketing differently. So I'm not sure yet what that looks like, but I, I think there's something important there for us to, to explore. I agree with you 100%. I've been on the soapbox for a while now that the tech industry actually has commandeered the higher ed message in terms of like, be your creative self, bring your whole self. This is your space to create whatever you want and forge a path. All the words that we use in our marketing materials, but kind of isn't actual real life 
Mm -hmm. Really? Tech has that in spades, right? Like energetic ads, it's energetic copy and this desire to stay like prim and proper in higher ed means that the competition just looks a little different and kind of looks boring and higher ed is anything but that the research and innovation and problem solving and the forwardness that higher ed brings to society that should all be captured somewhere like it's an exciting place when you want it to be exciting it is Um, so yeah i i totally agree with that there are opportunities that exist all over the place for higher ed to borrow from other industries to amplify their stuff Absolutely. Well, and all you have to do is look at some of our basic documents to see that in action, right? I mean, when you look at a, a, a course catalog, right, or a, you know, a university catalog, clearly that is written for an internal audience and not for people on the outside because nobody talks like that, right? I mean, there are just so many examples that of that. And I think you're right. There, We shouldn't seem boring to people. We should seem like it really empowering. And I think we have not captured that a lot of the time. We, we, we feel sort of stuffy and we feel sort of lost in our procedures sometimes. And instead of saying, look, well, this is about you and how we can partner with you to help you kind of figure out where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think more of those kinds of conversations are going to be really necessary. Aaron, this has been a pleasure. Is there anything else that you would like to mention that we have not asked about? What are you working on next? Is there? Are you doing more thinking in, in this space of not being in the generic university? What's what's coming up? Yeah, I, I really I do continue to think about um, differentiation and opportunities uh, for institutions to create change. I'm working right now on an article talking about how to help make universities better places to work, and um, you know how you can help employees experience them in a different way that I think very much ties in with this area of uh, of differentiation. And I've been having a lot of great conversations with faculty and things like that, too, especially in some of the liberal arts and sciences area talking about, okay, you know, why do people sort of not understand all the great things that they're doing? So really, in some ways, my differentiation conversation, I had a couple of colleagues who said, oh, you know, that article that I want to talk more with you about that, because how can we differentiate what it is that we're doing and tell our story in some great ways? And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, some of those really classic majors and the many things that they offer to students that right now we're just not telling that story well either. So I'm excited to keep this conversation going. Yeah, me too. I think that'll be really exciting, especially that work piece as well. Are you on social? Where can people find you? I am um, certainly LinkedIn. I'm I'm very active uh, there. I, I don't uh, do as much other social, but um, but I, I would say definitely you know find me on LinkedIn and you know and if you see you know this article or or others, I mean feel free to to send me notes or comments. I, I you know love to hear if it resonates with you or if you have other thoughts. I mean I really. I feel like there's such an opportunity to do more for this profession that we all know and love, right? And I think if we all put our great thinking together about this, we're just going to be able to continue to be proud of the work that we do and the the benefits that we offer our students. Aaron Basket, it's been a pleasure. We will have a link to your article, Stop Playing It Safe, The Peril of the Generic College, on our episode page. Thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. I really appreciate it and can't wait for this to go live to share with the world. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2.